I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 443 for February 9th, 2015. On today's show, saxophonist Rudresh Mahantapa. The Jazz Session in its podcast form has been gone for a little while. Meanwhile, I've been on the radio hosting a weekly music show based out of Penn State University's radio station here in State College, Pennsylvania. The show airs Friday mornings from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, and I do hope you'll tune in. You can find all the links you need at thejazzsession.com. It's just called the Jazz Session Radio Edition, and it features two hours of music, including music by many of the artists you'll hear right here on the Jazz Session. Thanks to everyone who is a member of this show. $5 a month is all I ask, and it gets you access to hundreds and hundreds of interviews, along with MP3s and other exclusive content. Your $5 goes directly toward keeping this site online, which is not cheap, uh, because the archives are large and they take up many, 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 many gigabytes of space. So if you like what you hear and you like having that archive available to you, please consider kicking in five bucks a month to help me pay for it. If you're listening to the show in iTunes, I hope that you'll rate and review the show. It helps it move up in the iTunes rankings and makes it a little easier for other people to find me, just like you did. Speaking of moving up in the rankings, the jazz session in a month will be eight years old, and in all of that time, it has never been mentioned in any jazz media of which I'm aware. But this year came in second in the Jazz Times poll uh, of best podcast we lost out to dave douglas's show so congratulations to dave and thank you to everybody who voted for the jazz session i have been taking a hiatus from social media and that means i've been blogging a lot more if you want to see the kind of things i'm writing about you can visit jasoncrane.org where i post a record of the day and i've been tracking actors who appear from stargate who appear in other films and tv shows and uh, lots of poems you know, the usual kind of stuff that I write about. So if you're interested in that, head over to jasoncrane.org. And if you need some professional writing done for you, maybe a press release for your new record or a bio for your website, check out cranewrites.com, cranewrites.com, where you'll find samples of my work. As always, you can leave a comment under this episode, or you can contact me directly at jason at thejazzsession.com. Rudresh Mahantapa has been on the show before, but it's been a while, and he's got a great new album out now called Bird Calls. Let's hear something from that, and then my interview with Rudresh.
My guest is saxophonist and composer Rudresh Mahantapa, whose new album is called Bird Calls. Uh, it's been about five years since you've been on the show, I was surprised to learn, which is which is way too long, and it's great to have you back. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Rudresh. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. It's great to be here. Has it really been five years? It seems like only like two or three. I know. It's crazy. I was I was looking back at it uh, at the date of your last appearance. And yeah, it was uh, in 2010, toward the end of the year. So maybe it's four and a half years, but but a long time. Yeah. Uh, you've made a lot of music uh, since the last time you were on the show. That's for sure. So I thought it was kind of funny that I was sent this album when I was because I had just been really kind of deep into Charlie Parker about the same time as this record arrived. And I was kind of deep into Charlie Parker because I every once in a while I get these little periods where I think, oh, I, I should probably go back and listen to Charlie Parker again and not just like put him on in the background, but really sit there and listen and uh, you know, I learned uh, from reading about this this record, and of course from listening to it, that that seems to be something uh, that you frequently do too, which is to go back and and kind of reimmerse yourself in Charlie Parker. And so I, I was curious about about why and what what his music means to you, and, and why it was important enough uh, to explore on this record. Oh, that's a yeah, that's a good question. I um, well. Charlie Parker was one of the greatest inspirations for me to even think about making a life in this music. So uh, his presence in in my history and in, in my biography is, you know, it goes beyond his, his his great playing and his his great writing and and all these amazing albums. It's um, it's it's I, I would liken it more to you know the way you feel about your first love. There's something there's something about that. <laughs> that that first love you had whatever in junior high or high school or elementary school that that is very special that somehow shapes the way you know you think about the world and you think about relationships and and so on and i guess in that way charlie parker serves as a role model uh for me and and how i how i see jazz and how i see my relationship to improvised music and and american music for that matter you know that first love analogy is interesting. I, I can I can clearly remember mine, and I've had many great relationships since. But I feel like there's always some little way, no matter how fulfilling your later relationships are, that you're trying to recapture some of what it felt like when it was brand new. And is that is that part of what this relationship with Charlie Parker's music is for you? That there's always some way you're trying to to just hold on to that original spark. Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Um, it's funny, you know, with, with the technology we have, I mean, we take it all for granted now, but, you know, if you if you let your iTunes go uh, on some sort of random playlist, uh, inevitably something will come up that you've forgotten about. And for me, whenever a Charlie Parker track comes up, I just, you know, I kind of stop doing whatever I'm doing. And, and, uh, and I, I feel that feeling again. I feel that feeling of of discovering what it meant to attempt to play jazz as, you know, I think a ninth grader and, and, um, and just the excitement of that, uh, of the, of that great unknown of what that meant, you know, standing at the, at the precipice of this, you know, ready to jump into this great art form and, and see what I could make of it. Um, but obviously, you know, there, there's, <laughs> there are very few, uh, role models that, that one could have that are better than Charlie Parker. I mean, his, you know, his, 
I mean, you know, we always talk about how he's a genius and, and we can talk more about, you know, what exactly that means and, and what that means to um, us in, in 2015. But but just very quickly, I mean, you know, he was obviously a virtuoso of the saxophone and obviously completely fresh at the time. But there's this incredible joy and this incredible um, storytelling that occurs in, in what he does. And, you know, one thing I've mentioned before, you know, in talking about him and, and this and the, what went into making this album is that, you know, whenever I put on uh, on a Charlie Parker album, I always felt like he was playing just for me. Um, even though there might be, you know, several hundred thousand copies of that album circulating, you know, worldwide, there was there there was this very um, clear connection for me. Like I I felt like th there was a there was something there was a message in there that 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 I was meant to hear. And you know, I don't mean that in that you know I'm hearing something revolutionary that uh, no one else is hearing. I'm I'm, I'm thinking more in the in the sort of, uh, you know, metaphysical, I guess. I feel like I should say at this point that uh, although this album is inspired through and through and informed through and through by Charlie Parker, uh, just for folks who are are hearing little bits of it as we talk, this is not uh, kind of your standard tribute album. It's not a collection of Charlie Parker tunes done with your arrangement. It's it's a collection of original compositions, and to me that I think if you're, I mean certainly many people play Charlie Parker's tunes and that's fabulous in its own way but to me one of the great inspirations to be taken from charlie parker is the idea of writing original music even if it's over chord progressions that you took from somewhere else but is the this idea of writing original music and finding a way to express what you have to say through the original creation of melody and then improvisation on those melodies and so it seems very fitting that that's what this album is given whose influence was most important in its creation 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you can sum it up very quickly in saying that, you know, I think that the best way we can play, pay tribute to Charlie Parker is to not play his music, but to actually somehow show what we've learned from him and, and how we've taken the gifts that he gave us and, and, and made them our own and, and, um, and stress the importance of, of individuality and, and having a unique voice and, and, and saying something special and personal in the same way that he did. I mean, those are the ways that he's a role model to me. It's not playing his music and playing, you know, his, his licks or, you know, his, uh, musical ideas that, that's not an effective way of paying tribute to Charlie Parker, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about all of this. Uh, you know, I, the idea of making this album or writing music that was based on Charlie Parker's work is something that lurked in the in the back of my mind for a long time. And it, it first struck me almost 20 years ago, I think, where I was working on Donna Lee with a student and we were taking little pieces of it in isolation just to just to work on them just to practice them and you, you know the way that you should do if you're trying to learn something um and hearing bits of the melody of donnelly in isolation in this kind of removed sort of way without you know, removed from the context of the whole piece uh was very eye-opening because you know these little snippets actually sounded more like um Bartok or, um, you know, some sort of modern 20th century latter half of the 20th, 20th century classical music. And that's when it really struck me that there was so much information in what Charlie Parker played and that if we're accustomed to only perceiving it from start to finish, like normally, you know, um, and I think it's human nature, too, Um there are many people that know the head to Donnelly, the melody to Donnelly, and they can start at the beginning and play through to the end. But I think that the real interesting moments happen if you if you start in the middle and maybe a place that's a little bit unorthodox and end in a place that's not necessarily quote unquote normal or, or regular. You start turning his musical vocabulary and his musical ideas a, a little bit on its side and and there's a there's a devil is in the details, you know, sort of um, occurrence that uh, that manifests there. And so a lot of the melodic material for this album, for the, these original compositions I wrote, are, are based on snippets of, of things that Charlie Parker played in particular tunes. E each one of my tunes is tagged to a particular um, melody or solo of Charlie Parker's. And it was really a process of uh, transforming things that he played and and looking at them in just in different ways. I mean, you know, there is a piece that's based on Donnelly, but it's, it's not based on the beginning of Donnelly. It, it's based on kind of a middle area that I thought was particularly interesting and, you know, so on and so forth. So each each tune is has that kind of um, basis, I guess. Well, let's hear a little bit of that tune. Uh, this is called On the DL from Rajesh Mahantapa's new album, Bird Calls.
maybe you can just talk just a little bit more. I mean, I, th- I think you you gave us a good foundation, but can you speak just a little more specifically about this piece and about how you figured out which isolated bit to use and then how you figured out what to do with that to create a new piece? Yeah, sure. So it's different for every piece, for sure. Uh, for this one, um, there's this part of the melody towards the end of Donnelly that's you know something like that. So I just took that part and and worked with the um, I guess more of the conceptual material there, but but the, but the melody to on the DL is very much coming out of that part. And then there's a one phrase that ends that I remember that particular phrase in isolation struck me as being so advanced and so forward thinking. So that's something that that occurs in there, too. So. Yeah, so it's very it's actually based on these very small parts of of things that uh, of of that melody, very small phrases that Charlie Parker wrote. You know, it's interesting you talking about how how modern and and forward thinking these pieces are because and especially when taken in isolation like that. As I as I mentioned at the at the top of this interview, I had been kind of deep listening to Bird recently after feeling a little bit like oh it's been too long, and every time I I go back to Charlie Parker and I, and I'm not going back with nearly the the uh, theoretical or or musical knowledge that that you're listening with but i'm i'm listening with my years of listening and every time i go back to him i think one more time like and it's so easy to just think of this stuff because i've heard donnelly 10 million times to just think of it as oh it's just donnelly but if you actually sit and listen to it like you were hearing it for the very first time or like you were hearing it for the very first time in the 1940s i mean i can't completely put myself back in those days but but i've heard the music that came before it just seems like it I guess it didn't come out of nowhere, but in some ways it seems like a lightning strike on the scene as opposed to the result of a slow evolutionary process that led to, okay, now it's Charlie Parker is the next thing, then the next thing, and the next thing. In some ways it seems like, okay, everything's going along, and hey, it's Charlie Parker, and no one was prepared for what it would sound like. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I guess you, you, trying to kind of find that sort of lightning strike sort of feeling in, in music that, you know, I've heard, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times was, was really, uh, was really fun because I knew that it was there. And a lot of this also comes out of this, this idea that, you know, we, like I met, you know, I referred to earlier, we always, um, we always say Charlie Parker was a genius and, um, and I'm not saying that we should ever doubt that he was a genius, but, I think it's worth investigating in why and and how and in what ways he was a genius and 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 what does that mean to us now as as fans of jazz or improvised music or or the actual you know makers of, of this music because it's so easy to just say yeah Bird was a genius that's great and let's kind of continue with doing what we do and so so what the- does it what does it mean to say that he was a genius. Well, I think the thrust of this project was actually to to maybe demonstrate why his um, his output is is still incredibly revolutionary. That that his um, that we can't just say you know we, yeah, Bird was a genius and 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 we we know that and we've learned that and now we can 
we can move on. There's there's so much there that we can still keep digging through. And I think people in general, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but but my perspective is that it's understood that Coltrane left us with a lot that we we still have to, you know, dig through. That you know, there are very few people that are going to say, yeah, I know Coltrane from beginning to end, and 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 can describe it to you and play it for you and and blah blah blah. But I think more people are people are more inclined to say that at Charlie Parker, and I I just think that's not true, and I, I think it's important to see why he's such an important figure in in modern American music and, and, and not just jazz and that, uh, and it's not just about these melodies that we can sing. It's, it's about his rhythmic focus and his, his rhythmic mastery for that matter. And his, um, and just his harmonic palette and, and that, you know, yeah, we call these particular things bebop, but in the larger picture of, of Western music, it, it's, it's so much more than that and has so much relevance both in in sort of a Western classical world, but but in the rhythmic propulsion that um, that is no different to me than um, you know than lots of things. It, it isn't different. It, it, you, the rhythmic sense and and the the rhythmic ideas aren't different than than Parliament Funkadelic to me. They're not different than um, you know the Rolling Stones or you know that that sort of drive and that sort of attention to um, syncopation and and storytelling you know i think charlie parker is just as much uh, uh as big a part of what 20th century american music is um as anybody else that we would put up there and regardless of genre I'd like to turn back the clock just a little bit. Uh, talking about Charlie Parker in that way, that's clearly with the benefit of all your years of training and study and performance. And I know that when you first heard Charlie Parker, uh, it was because, or at least the first time it, it really struck you, was because you were given this uh, an album by a teacher, music teacher in junior high. And so what was it without all without everything that you have now can you remember what it was you heard then with those ears that that affected you so strongly 
Yeah, I, I, I try to uh, to get into that mindset. So what I had been listening to was, you know, Grover Washington Jr., the Yellow Jackets, David Sanborn, you know, the Brecker Brothers, um, and what was on the radio in, in the early 80s. I was probably in, you know, se- I guess seventh grade or something like that when I first heard Charlie Parker. And, you know, what I heard was was just incredible joy and and momentum and and virtuosity and and just real beauty. I mean not that the stuff I was listening to already was didn't have its own sense of beauty, but there was something about Charlie Parker that had a that had a completeness to it that I think um you know regardless of how little or much I had, you know, studied saxophone or studied music or had been on this planet for that matter. Um, yeah, it just spoke to me. It, it resonated in a way. And I don't think it's unique to me. I mean, I think you can put Charlie Parker on for someone that doesn't even necessarily consider themselves knowledgeable about music, or maybe they don't even consider themselves a music lover per se. And, and, you know, they will hear that. They will hear that, um, that joy and and compassion and and that zest for life that I think as human beings we we gravitate towards we gravitate towards that sort of energy. Yeah, I I uh, live in a college town and I run a, a book and record store and we we have only vintage vinyl and we have a lot of jazz uh, and I'm always surprised. Well, I guess I'm not as surprised anymore because it's happened enough times that I now I I know. But I was originally surprised by how many people bought Charlie Parker records and not like the professors, but how many of the students, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old students. And there's a there's a music program there, but it's not a music school and there's no conservatory. There's not it's not like these are all jazz kids coming in. Right. They're just they're just folks, you know, coming in and and buying Charlie Parker. And when I play Charlie Parker in the store, usually whatever I'm playing sells. Right. And, you know, it's 2015, and I have to say I didn't think that would be the case. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you know, when you consider uh, jazz being such an incredibly small percentage of, of the overall, you know, music market share, you know, it makes it even more surprising. But... You know, he had something. There was there was something very special in 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 what he conveyed that I I think ultimately is you know maybe not uh, not quantifiable and 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 you know maybe is lost in in a verbal description. But but I think um, I think anyone can hear it uh, if they if they want to if they're open to it for that matter. While we're still uh, kind of uh, talking a little bit about your your youth, can you tell the story, which I, I really enjoyed reading about, of Savoy 2201? Oh, yeah. So, you know, one of the uh, the hallmarks of jazz education is, is a book called the Charlie Parker Omnibook, which was um, transcriptions of, of a bunch of Charlie Parker solos. And... Uh, this was a Jamie Abersold book, is that right? Right, Jamie Abersold, who's who's an icon in, in jazz education, really. He he transcribed all these solos, and they're very accurate. They're very well done. Um, so I had a copy of that book, and uh, and I had maybe one rec- Charlie Parker record at the time, and a, a couple of those solos were in this book. But I noticed, so Abersold didn't list the the actual albums. 
that these solos were from, what he listed was a uh, was record label catalog numbers because, as is the case of you know recordings made at that time, oftentimes a you know one session might be split up between four different records and tunes get put in different orders and then there are different sorts of compilations. So it didn't really make sense to say this is on the Charlie Parker album called blah 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 because it's very possible that album. Uh, you know, they made a hundred copies of the album and then they called it something else. So I noticed that many of these solos were tagged to the catalog number Savoy 2201. And uh, so I kind of went on a mission to, to, to find that album. And there used to be a chain, you might remember a chain called uh, a record store chain that was often in oftentimes in malls called Musicland. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I went into Musicland and looked in the Charlie Parker band and, you know, was flipping through and, you know, and I saw this double album called the Savoy Recordings and I looked on the spine and it said Savoy 2201. And, you know, and I flipped. I was like, it was like I had found the Holy Grail. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like I said, I was in seventh grade or something. So, you know, spending 15 or 20 dollars on an album. I mean, that was that was well over a month's allowance, but you know, it was, it was surely well worth it. And then I was really able to hear all those solos and, you know, in real time, as opposed to, you know, that awful practice of, of playing through solo transcriptions and having never heard the, um, the original. And so that kind of opened up the floodgates for me because regardless of, of my inabilities and, and my crappy saxophone sound, I was, I at least tried to play along with these solos and, and then I started seeing the value later of, of abandoning the transcription book and just learning them by ear. But um, but the pairing of that book and and that uh, double vinyl was uh, was definitely a momentous occasion. <laughs> So let's jump back up to the present and and talk about bird calls. Uh, I I absolutely want to make sure we talk about who's on this record with you because it's it's just a wonderful band of people who seem at least to my ear to be right there with you when it comes to both uh, feeling the inspiration behind this music but also wanting to to push it 
further. Can you talk about who's on this record with you? Yeah, everyone um, that's on the album was, you know, was, uh, I guess, chosen, at least in my head, when I first started writing the music. I'm not one of these guys that writes music and then uh, finds, then figures out who's going to play it. So I'm definitely writing for a specific personnel which is always funny to do in this day and age because you can't guarantee that these people will actually be able to play play the gigs after the record comes out. But that's a whole other story. So, um, I, so I have a very different relationship to each one. Uh, Matt Mitchell is playing piano, and Matt is somebody who had reached out to me many years ago because we had a mutual friend. Um, so we'd been in touch for a while, but but I'd never heard him. And he at the for many years, he was a librarian at a, at a university in Philadelphia. Um, so it didn't even occur to me, I guess, that he was this monster pianist. But uh, finally, the, the word started spreading. And, you know, uh, Ralph Alessi, great trumpet player, had hired him and John Hollenbeck as well. And, you know, the, these people that I respect. And then he's playing with Tim Byrne. And finally, um, Reza Bassi. I was in a group of re- the guitarist Reza Bassi, who's a great guitarist and great friend of mine, and um, the usual pianist couldn't make it, so he called Matt to do a couple of gigs. And you know, after the first tune, I, I quickly understood why everyone liked Matt so much. <laughs> I mean, he was yeah, really fabulous, and and he actually ended up subbing on a few uh, shows with Apex, which was the quintet that I led with Bunky Green. Um, so this was not our first time playing together by by any means but i knew he would be great for this project and you know everyone that's involved here has like a a very strong foothold in in the tradition of this music and the building blocks of of this music but but has a kind of a long view and, and a foot in the future and um and that's how i've always shaped my artistic perspective so i really wanted to surround myself with people like that and um, if if you wouldn't mind me uh, interrupting for one second before you sure. go on with the band, I'll just say that uh, Matt has been on this show, so there's an episode for folks to check out in the archive. And in fact, almost everyone whose name you just mentioned has been on the jazz session at one point or another, including all the people Matt's played with. So uh, if folks and and Rez Abbasi, so if folks want to uh, go into the archive, uh, there are interviews with all those folks, and you can kind of follow the family tree uh, out from uh, Redresh's album. And please do because it's a lot of great music. Absolutely. So I uh, forgive the interruption and, and please continue. Well, and then Francois Moutin is playing acoustic bass. Francois is someone I met my third week in, in New York City. And I was sitting in on a gig, I think, of, of Ari Honig's at a club that doesn't exist anymore called Dharma in the uh, uh, Lower East Side. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, one of those things where, you know, just within the first tune, Francois and I looked at each other and we kind of knew that we would probably be playing together for for the rest of our lives. And, you know, here we are 17 years later. um, We're still doing a lot together. He's played on almost every album of mine. So uh, what what is it about? I mean, how how do you know in that moment that that feels like one of those love at first sight things where maybe it can't be explained. But how how did you know? What was it about it? We just had a connection very quickly. We we had a, a, a sense of. You know, musically, I felt like he understood where I was going and I understood where he was going. And, you know, we it was that feeling of, um, you know, when you meet someone and you feel like you've known them, you know, your whole life. That was that was the feeling both musically and personally with Francois. So 
it was kind of a no-brainer. So we, you know, we we've played so many gigs together and done so much together, and and our families are very close to, and it, you know, it's it's one of those relationships that that I really treasure, um, uh, both you know personally and artistically. Um, and then Rudy Royston is playing drums. Rudy is uh, is really fabulous. Uh, I think a lot of people have heard him with uh, Bill Frizzell and with Dave Douglas and, um, you know, myriad other uh, band leaders, um, mostly New York-based band leaders. But Rudy and I go back a long time. We actually go back to 1991. He's a fellow Coloradan. And I'll, you know, I'll try to sum it up briefly. I, I had a uh, 91. I had gone on a, on a cruise ship, taken a cruise ship gig, and I hated it so much. I quit after six weeks. And instead of going back, you know, my idea was I was going to spend the whole summer out there and save all this money, and then go back to Berkeley College of Music and, you know, and live like a king because I'd saved all this money. And what ended up happening is that I hated it, and uh, and so I just went home to Boulder, Colorado, to to kind of. Uh, ride out the rest of the summer but i was incredibly depressed about that being my first professional gig and i was really wondering why i'd even you know chosen this career path and you know if if it was if that was what this career path was i should try, probably try to find something else to do and but i you know i was trying to um keep my chin up and i went to all the old spots around boulder and denver where i used to sit in uh like, you know, steady jazz gigs here and there, led by locals. And I went to one in Boulder that I used to go to a lot on Friday afternoons, Friday evenings. And um, and we were playing Cherokee, and everyone dropped out except for me and the drummer. And we just had this great time playing duo together. And at the end of the night, I, I went and talked to him, and, and it was Rudy. And I knew, I didn't know Rudy by face but i knew that he, he was uh doing a lot of work with ron miles great trumpet player who i really respect and uh and rudy had just started a band kind of a collective project with a few other people in in the denver area and he asked me if i would join that band and um that playing with him and and other things that happened that summer by just being in that kind of a creative environment um turned me around and and really, you know, kept me from quitting <laughs> playing the saxophone because I think I was really ready to hang it up. So I always joke with Rudy. I always tell Rudy that he saved my life. Um, but he kind of did because I was really, really dark. And, and, uh, and you know, there's a good possibility I might not be playing music right now if it hadn't been for the events that he helped set in motion that summer. Do a lot of your musical relationships tend to last a long time? Certainly the stories of Francois and Rudy that you just told makes it sound like that might be the case. Well, there are a few of them. You know, actually, Rudy and I lost touch for many, many years. And, and then he kind of reappeared in New York and people were talking about this guy. And I was like, Rudy Royston. I was like, I know Rudy Royston. So it took us a long time to, to get to play together. Um, and he ended up subbing on some gigs with Samdi and, and that, you know, that's how we ended up really connecting again musically. Um, you know, some of these relationships last a long time. I think some of them are seeds that are planted and you never know when the, those, uh, those people circle back into your life, but they seem to circle back into your life when, when, uh, it's mutually necessary and, and, um, 
and you know and beneficial for kind of an an overall uh good and and an overall uh forward motion um but yeah but francois and, and vijay Iyer, dan weiss reza bossi i mean these are people i've you know when i start remembering it's 2015 i realize that i've been playing with these people for 10 plus years and, and i don't imagine that that's going to stop anytime in the next uh Oh, let's say I give myself 35 years, you know, like I don't see that um that ending. So, I think those are the best kinds of relationships, you know, you and and those are friendships too, you know. So it's not just about playing the mu- playing music. It's it's almost that the maybe the music is a byproduct of of being friends, or at least I think it becomes that. Jazz always struck me. I mean, for all the time that I that I lived in New York and but really for for a lot of my life, it always struck me that the jazz world was kind of a small town. I mean, it's it's a small town that's spread over the entire planet, right. and and maybe based in you know one of the largest cities on earth. But it still feels like a small town. I was reminded of that by you saying that you know sometimes people circle back into your life, and I it almost feels that way. Like you you know you can kind of be operating all in this same place, and then you come together for for an event, and maybe you go off and live separate lives again, but you're all still kind of in this same small orbit and. And someday you'll probably find your way back to one another. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I've just seen it happen time and time again. I mean, I think particularly about the people I went to school with, whether it was at North Texas State or Berkeley College of Music. You know, I'm talking about my undergrad. I, I finished school in in, in 1992. So it's, it's it's a good 23 years ago. And and I see those people circle back into my life. And, and some of them are people I haven't seen, you know, since then. Like I was thinking about how, yeah, I'm doing this uh, gig in in Cleveland in a few weeks, and it just so happens this band from Sweden is playing in Cleveland the same night, and and two of the guys are are people I was at North Texas with, who I haven't seen since, and we're actually gonna going to get together. I mean, I think that that's kind of crazy to wow to see how. Um, to see how these things work out and, and see how they manifest. And, and some of them really manifest in, in, you know, some of it is just kind of a nice way of reconnecting. And sometimes they result in, in really great projects and, and really interesting music. And I think as long as you keep, as we keep ourselves open to that, there's, you know, there are a lot of great possibilities. I want to make sure we don't forget the person playing trumpet. On this Absolutely. So uh, Adam O'Farrell is playing trumpet. Adam O'Farrell comes from the, the great O'Farrell family. He's the son of Arturo O'Farrell, the great band leader and pianist, and, and the grandson of Chico O'Farrell. And Chico O'Farrell uh, is very important because he, he um, in many ways, is a primary component of, of bringing Cuban music to to America, and he wrote the original Afro-Cuban jazz suite for Machito's band to feature Charlie Parker. So it was really some of the first uh, sort of intercultural um, jazz that that Chico is is responsible for, and uh, and I think Arturo has has carried that torch, but but made it his own and. Uh, and Adam is only 20 years old, and and he's like a real I you know I I don't really like the word so much, but uh, I think prodigy is a good way to describe him. He's uh, an incredibly fluid trumpet player. He's got amazing ears. He has a very um, 
innovative, forward-thinking uh, head on his shoulders. And I've been looking. I really wanted a trumpet player to be on this album, and I have never made an album as a leader with a trumpet player. And I've actually very done very few albums that feature another horn player. Um, but I wanted to to convey that that sense of you know whether it was Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie or Miles Davis or Herb Pomeroy or you know any number of trumpet players that Charlie Parker employed to, you know, to play next to him, to be his foil, so to speak, I, I think. Uh, yeah, I wanted to, to to have that spirit as well. And um, Adam just seemed like he was the right person. And uh, we actually didn't know each other. and But a few people had mentioned him as a great possibility. And I watched some videos of him on YouTube and I was really blown away. So I just I just emailed him and asked him if he wanted to be part of the project. And uh, and he was very enthusiastic about it and consequently played really great and, and continues to do so. And some of your listeners might know he was um, a finalist in the Thelonious Monk competition just a few months ago as it was trumpet this year. We're drawing uh, kind of near the end here. I, d I wanted to ask, uh, the album is called Bird Calls, but there are also several uh, pieces on the album with that same name, Bird Calls. Uh, could you say something about those? Well, I guess those serve as introductions or, or interludes, but I always like this idea of, of featuring um, members of the band as, as soloists and uh, yeah, solo solo, uh, you know, where they're playing by themselves. And in this case, I, I wanted them to somehow briefly uh, portray what Charlie Parker means to them. And and that could be anything. It was really open ended. I, I, I didn't at all coach them on what I wanted them to do or how I wanted them to do it. I just I, I, I wanted I what I did. The only instructions they did have was, you know, that maybe this was a bridge between this piece and this piece. And if they could keep that in the back of their mind. But, you know, hearing someone play solo solo is a, a very it's a chance to to be a part of like a really intimate glimpse into someone's artistic soul. And, and I think it's maybe something that doesn't happen enough, especially especially on instruments besides piano. So I thought that was a good opportunity to feature that. Well, as I uh, as I often say, this show is is more advocacy than journalism, and so I feel comfortable in saying that I, I really really dig this album, and uh, I've listened to it quite a number of times since receiving it, and I I think this will be one of those you know with the number of albums that I get sent, there aren't all that many that make it into any kind of regular 
rotation, but I, I feel like this one's going to be one of the ones I'll I'll go back to. It's just uh, I think it really does a great job capturing the the joy that you described in your own hearing of Charlie Parker and kind of bringing that into the 21st century. So it's just a, a wonderful album, and I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about it. Yeah, me too, Jason, and thank you so much for those words. That means a lot to me. My guest is Rudresh Mahanthapa. His new album is called Bird Calls. It's been a pleasure. Uh, let's do it again before another five years elapses, and uh, I wish you all the best, and I thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason. Take care. That's music from Rudresh Mahantapa and his brand new record, Bird Calls. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the music for this show. You can find them online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the logo. You can keep up with The Jazz Session at facebook.com slash thejazzsession, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Don't forget to check out my blog at jasoncrane.org, and if you need some professional writing done, visit cranewrites.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. More episodes on the way in the very near future. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.